Turn in your Bibles, if we can, to John 6. I will keep an eye on my time, too. We'll, we'll cover what we can, and then we'll pick up next week. So John chapter 6, let me, have, let me read the scripture to you. Follow along with us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number four on the row of the four gospel accounts. And I'll, I'll dismiss the kids after we read scripture. Actually, I'm going to jump down to verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, chapter 6, verse 25, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, excuse me, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever be- looks, whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should not, should, let me say it again, verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Woo, okay. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, this morning. So kids, you're dismissed to Children's Church. Hopefully you checked in. If not, teachers as well. I know it's new, but um, well, for the teachers that need to check in so we have record of. And we're in John 6. Actually, we're going to be in John 6 this week and the next two weeks as well. There is a lot here. So we'll cover some of it today and uh, then we will move on to chapter 7, going through the book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And this morning, we'll, we'll look under our teaching, our scripture reading, in four headings, okay? Um, well, first, we'll see the unanswered, or excuse me, the uncertain investigation. They're looking for Jesus. They're not sure where he is. The unanswered inquisition, they, they're asking questions. In fact, there's multiple questions in this text of Jesus, and he doesn't answer them. Then the unmistakable provision. He makes it, breaks it down and makes it very clear to them and to us who he is. And then the unbreakable preservation. That which God gives to Jesus will be kept. So that's where we are. Chapter 6. If you remember, it opened up with a miraculous event. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, having compassion on a people that were up on a mountainside, did this wonderful and miraculous feeding of 5,000 men, not including women and children. He did it from a boy's lunch. Two small fish and five barley loaves. And if that wasn't enough, there were 12 baskets of food left over, more 
than what he started with. After everyone ate, verse 11 and 12, as much as they wanted, they were filled to the brim. The people who were already anticipating, verse 4 tells us, of the up-and-coming Passover festival that celebrated the deliverance from slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land led by Moses, they decided that this miraculous event in which Jesus did must point to the one Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18. And they said, you're the one Moses spoke about, verses 15 and 14 and 15 of chapter 6. You're the prophet. You're the one that's coming into the world. So they perceived that he was the one that Moses spoke about in Deuteronomy 18, and they wanted to make him king. Not only prophetic, but kingly, this one that Moses spoke about. They figured, you know what? Moses, the first deliverer, the first rescuer, the first prophet led us out of slavery in Egypt. Certainly you could be king and lead us out of subjection to Rome. We want to make you king now. This is when Jesus went up to the mountain, remember, to pray and to rest. And he gave his disciples this instructions and he puts them in the boat and he sends them out into the Sea of Galilee. They are on the eastern side of the sea. And last week we looked at this storm that came upon them, this violent windstorm in the middle of the night. And Jesus... Uh, uh, comes walking to them in the midst of the sea, and we took note that he came upon them while they were doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. In the midst of the will, the, the, the perfect will of God, storms come, and there comes Jesus. He comes and rescues them and saves them from, from, from drowning and from this storm. We said that the feeding of the 5,000 is this, this manna, this bread in, in, that came down and Jesus didn't come down, but Jesus just created it. And then this walking on water is a great reflection of the Exodus, the Passover. God, through Moses, gives a manna from heaven as they wander in the wilderness. God, through Moses, went to the sea and, and, and Moses commanded the sea to part, walk through the dry land, and then, you know, the waters came down and killed Pharaoh's army. And what we see in John 6, what you need to see in John, all of John 6, is Jesus is the true and the better Moses, who, who out of ex nihilo, out of nothing, creates bread and has the authority not only to part the sea, but to walk on the sea and rescue his frightened disciples. We said last week, and we ended with both stories, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the bottom line is Jesus is enough. That's how we ended. I am the Almighty One. I am, and I will step into the world, into your storm. My presence in the midst of your storm is all you need. It is all satisfying. I am enough. And that's where we pick up our story. Now, today's text and the rest of the chapter, chapter 6, 22 and following, really is an explanation of the feeding of the 5,000 in the beginning of the chapter. John inserts in between the feeding and the explanation the story of the walking on water, and we covered that last week. I don't want to hit that. But, so now here we see the, the explanation of it. So our first point, the uncertain investigation, what I want to do, I want to step back and kind of just, I don't know, look through the curtain and kind of give you a, a running start in what's really going on here. Look in your Bibles at chapter 6, verse 22 is where we'll start. Now, there's a reoccurring theme in the gospel according to John that we have seen up to this point. I think I mentioned this last week. People are just not getting it. People are just not getting it. And and it's a good time to remind you and to remind me that as long as we 
as long as we continue to try to see things in the natural, in our own eyes, when we, when we want to be filled with the stuff of this world, when we want our own appetites to be satisfied, we're not going to get it either. It's gotta, we've got to look beyond ourselves. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, he said, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. He says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Chapter 6, verse 2, a large crowd was gathering because they saw signs. They were watching what Jesus was doing, and a crowd had come together. If you remember, same thing in chapter 2, turns water into wine in Cana, goes down to Jerusalem, does all these miracles, and then Jesus actually says himself that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew their spurious faith in miracles alone was not something he can trust in. The exercising of faith simply on the grounds of some spectacular event is shallow and unauthentic. So also we see in John, not only did they not get the miracles, but Jesus is teaching them over and over and over again, and they're still not getting it. Chapter 2, destroy this temple. How are you going to destroy it? It took the 46 years. How are you going to? Talking about his body. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Really? Climb into my mother's womb? No, you're not getting it. It's got to be born of God. John chapter 4, a woman in the Samaritan. Samaritan woman, Jesus says, give me a drink. She's like, you're really? You got nothing? How are you going to get a drink out of this well? You have nothing to get it from. He says, ah, the water I will give you myself is eternally satisfying. She wasn't getting it. And all these things, we see that many people were seeking Jesus to get stuff, to, to seeking or, or just in seeking the material, the things that are right in front of them. That's called worldliness. Worldliness is everything you see is all there is. And Jesus is speaking to us this morning and to me and to you. And I've been praying that the eyes of your heart, the eyes, the spiritual eyes will be, un, will be open today. That you will see and I will see past the spiritual, excuse me, the physical to the spiritual. They saw the wonders, they heard the teachings, but they were missing what was very important, especially in the signs. The true sign Significance, the significance of the sign is what it speaks about himself. That's why John said, the reason I'm writing these things so that you will know that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, of the same nature of God, and that by believing and trusting in him, you'll have life in his name. And then we see in chapter 6, the crowd is searching. They're looking, they're, 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 they're investigating the whereabouts of Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. But I, but I love this, and I love pointing it out to you. Jesus knows that. And if it were me, I don't know. I, I may be grown so impatient, it would be like, you know what, I'm done with you. I mean, how much more could I possibly do? But in love and grace and mercy, Jesus keeps pressing on. And my prayer is that our eyes would be open too. Look at verse 22. On the next day, after the miracle heal of, of, of the bread, of the, of the walking on the water, two days after the bread came down, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, 
and that Jesus had not entered the boats with his disciples. Remember, he sent his disciples out in the boat that night after he fed the 5,000, right? But that his disciples had gone away. After another, verse 23, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks, okay? So here's the scene. It's morning. The morning after the feast on the mountain. The crowd's awakened and there's an expectation. There's a, there's a sense of great expectation. They've just been filled to the brim and they have all they could eat, five loaves, two fish, and now they've gathered together in the morning, kind of regathered in the morning and they're looking for Jesus. And it says they were still on the other side of the sea. That means they were on the eastern side, eastern side, while the disciples and Jesus were on the western sides. It says that they, 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 they're searching, they're looking around, but something was up because they're like, there was, there was only one boat. We saw the disciples get in the boat and leave, yet we can't find Jesus. And now there are more boats that came from Tiberias, but he's still nowhere to be found. Where did he go? Some people think that the boats that showed up in, from Tiberias, which is on the other side of the lake, may have been there because of the storm. Maybe the storm blew them, you know, so windy and such stormy that the boats were brought to the eastern side of the sea. Other people believe because the eastern side is a remote place that family and friends from the western shore came with the boats to pick up their friends and family. Maybe they got a bunch of text messages. I don't know. Hey, I'm on the eastern side. Come pick me up. I don't think that's what happened. But it, it, they could know that the crowd had left and we're going to go. So the boats are there. When you read scripture like that, when you see such unbelievable detail, we got up, we were looking around, there were boats here, there's no more boats. Now there are other boats are here and we can't find Jesus. We're searching. Yes, why, why all the information? Sometimes there's a blatant reason. Sometimes I think it's simply to let us know that what you have in your hand is an eyewitness account, a factual, historical account of what took place. So John, who knows, maybe when they finally went from the eastern side to the western side where they found the disciples and Jesus, maybe they said, yeah, we were looking all over for the Lord. We couldn't find them. We saw both. We weren't really sure. And then somebody said, he might have been on the western side. So here we are. We finally found you on the eastern side. I don't know. But I do know one thing. John is recording for us facts, historical truth, an eyewitness account of what took place in that day. Now, if you're here and you're going, so what? Maybe, maybe you never met a professor in your school or your college to tell you that the Bible is legend. The gospel accounts of Jesus' life isn't true. There was no real Jesus. It, it was folklore. It was legend. It was fables. If anybody tells you that, you could let them know. That in 2,000 years ago, there was no such thing as fables of folklore and legends that were written with such great detail. That's a modern thing. That didn't happen 2,000 years ago. When you write detail like that, any New Testament writer and anyone reading the New Testament in the era of the New Testament, first century, would have known without a shadow of a doubt that what was written was absolutely written as a historical factual event. C.S. Lewis, many of you know him. He's a great reader of literature. Listen to what he wrote. He said, I have been reading poems, romances, and vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. None of them are like the Gospels. Of the Gospel texts, 
There are only two possible views. Either this is reporting, historical reporting, or else some unknown ancient writer with no predecessors, no successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative 2,000 years ahead of its time when it happened, and the reader who doesn't see this is simply not have learned to read. End quote. The truth is, if you read and you're a reader, this is factual information John is giving to us. There were boats there. There was not a boat. Then there were some. We were looking for Jesus. There's a crowd. John gets this information, historical reporting. So when the crowd, verse 24, saw that Jesus was not there, they're searching for him. They're investigating, looking around. Nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats, eastern side, and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus on the western side. So they're like, you know what? Maybe, maybe people from the boats came and said, oh, we saw the crowd over, I don't know. But all I know is this historical fact that they were in the western side in a remote place, the boats show up and they go over to, excuse me, eastern side, and they go over to the western side of the lake and they find the Lord Jesus and his disciples. And when they find him, the unanswered inquisition, verse 25, they found them on the other side of the sea and they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Verse 25. Not odd. Not how. When? When did you get here? I think, I, I said, well, why did they say, how did you get here? The boats weren't there. There was no one there to take you. You know, how did you get here? No, they asked when. They're a fickle crowd. They figured, you know what? If we find out when, if he just got here, maybe he came over the boats with us. We didn't see him. So they asked him when. But, but notice, too, what does he do? He ignores their question. He calls him, they call him rabbi, kind of out of respect for him. They're not going to listen to him. He's teacher, rabbi. And what does he do? He just ignores their question. He ignores them. When did you get here? Jesus said to them, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, I've been here for an hour. He doesn't say that. It's almost like, it, really, it's none of your business, but, you know, I would say that. He probably didn't, but, you know, it, that's not important. You found me? When I got here, how I got here, not important. You're seeking me, he says, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Hmm. Chapter 6, verse 2. He was seeking them because of the signs. Now he's saying you're seeking me not because you saw the signs. You're seeking me now because your tummies are full. In other words, you're seeking me for the signs I was doing. You missed the reality of who I am in the significant of the sign. You missed that, of who I am, the actual purpose of the miraculous sign, to show you. And now, you're not even interested in that anymore. It's almost like they took a step backwards, and now they're only concerned with, where's the food? Where's the food? You're pursuing me, you're searching for me, and searching until you found me. And now, really, it's about your earthly appetites. Now... To be fair to them, we said this a couple of weeks ago, people in that day worked a full day's wager and 80% of that day's wager went for food. So it's not just a hot dog or a burger. Got $100 in my pocket, it's cost me $7. Remember, 80%. So in some ways, huh, uh, if you could give me 80%, of my wages, I'm going to be pretty rich in a little while. You know what I mean? So they're like, you know, uh, uh, we're, we want some more food. 
You know what I mean? He wants some more food. Look at verse 27. He says, Jesus says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Jesus is not saying, do not work for food. In other words, quit your day job. Just, just hang out with me. I'm just going to perform all kinds of things. I'm going to give you hamburgers, hot dogs, you name it on a night. I'm going to just break out a grill. Just quit. That's not what he's saying. He's kind of rebuking them by telling them that their mind, their hearts, they're, they're really about their goal, their pursuit is purely materialistic. And they're only concerned about this earthly kingdom. Jesus did not tell the woman at the well, listen, you don't ever drink water again. You never need water. No, she needs water. We all need water to survive. He's not saying, you know what? Don't work for food. You have to work. Families to support. Paul says at Thessalonica uh, Church, if anyone's not willing to work, let them not eat. Obviously, he's talking about those who can work. There's some invalids and stuff that couldn't work. But in other words, he's not saying don't quit and do nothing. Jesus is teaching. He's pointing away from the natural of, you know, the, 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 the focus of the na- nature of work. And he's pointing to the goal and the pursuit. What were they pursuing? What was their goal for working? And he pushes them and he wants them to see to get their minds off the physical into the spiritual, to the food that lasts, look what he says, for eternal life, that the Son of Man will give them. And he says, for him, for on him, is the very seal of God. You see that? A seal. Jesus, I'm the seal from God. I am the authentic, um, uh, genuine, certified, marked seal, approved, belonging to the Father. Like, really? Verse 28. Okay. So you're the approved seal. You're the one who is authentic. All right. They said to him, tell us then. You're talking about the works. What works? What works should we do? What must we do to be doing the works of God? You're the seal of God. Tell us what we should be working toward to gain eternal life. What does God require from us? Let us know. And whatever it is, we'll do it. Does that sound arrogant to you? Whatever God requires, let me know. I'll do it. Really? The fact that the eternal Son of God is bred from heaven as a gift to them for eternal life, that they can't earn it by anything they do, just eludes them. They're spiritually blind to what Jesus is trying to say. Again, before we judge, let's relate. How often do we feel in our day Family, how often do we feel in our day and think in our day, it's all about what I do, how I perform, how am I working the works of God in order to be loved, accepted, and forgiven? Jesus just said that food that endures to eternal life, the Son of Man will give to you. It's not about the nature of work. It's about the goal. It's the pursuit. This is the work, he says in verse 29. Jesus will answer them. All right, you want to know what God requires? This is the work of God. That you believe. Mark that in your Bibles. That you believe in him whom he has sent. The requirement of God is faith. This is not faith in the abstract and and experiential trust with some articulate object. Rather, they must believe in the one, Jesus, the bread, who has come down from heaven. 
And even notice that this isn't the work of, this isn't something that we earn. Generated by man, John 1, to all who receive him, believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Those who receive him, those who believe in his name, those he gave the right to become children of God, he says, were born not of man, not of the will of man, but born of God. It is the work of God. That's what Jesus is saying. There was the work of God. What must we do? They're stuck on the do. Look at verse 59. We're not going to get there for two weeks, but at least another week. Look at verse 59. What does it say? Jesus said these things where? In the synagogue. As he taught in Capernaum. That's a question that the Jewish leaders would want to know. What are the things I need to do, the God-honoring, God-glorifying work that will provide me with God's assurance, with God's acceptance by becoming a child of God? What must I do? And Jesus' response just flips the script on them. He defines the work, the honoring, the glorifying is believing in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.28, Paul says the same thing. For we Whole that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Sola fide is the cry of the reformers. Jesus taught it right here. It's not earning it. It's believing. It's trusting. You want to be right with God? You want to, to earn his love and forgiveness? You can't earn it. It's already been earned for you. The faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone it's a false teaching to earn your salvation. It's a false teaching that we somehow scratch God's back and God scratches our back. If that were the case, we have grounds to boast in ourselves. And the question then is, how many works do you need to add? If you think you can earn your way to God's favor, if you think you can work your way to God's grace, how much you have to do? A little bit? A lot? What scale are you using? The answer is none. We cannot earn our way. And some may say, well, aren't we supposed to do the work of God? Are we not supposed to to serve him and love him and, and do good deeds? Yes. But the order is very significant. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians to the order of good works. He says, for by grace, unearned, unmerited favor of God, you have been saved through faith. Just what Jesus said. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one will boast. For we, the children of God, saved by grace, faith, gift of God, for we are his workmanship, created, redeemed, brought into fellowship with our God for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So first comes grace, first comes mercy, first comes the gift, first comes the empowerment. Then there comes the work. John's calling us to trust in Jesus, to rely upon Jesus. The gospel, excuse me, religion, is I earn God's love, God's favor, and God's forgiveness by obeying him. That's religion. I earn God's favor, I earn God's love, I earn God's acceptance, I earn God's forgiveness by obeying him. The more I obey, the more I'm accepted. That's religion. The gospel is because of Jesus, his work on the cross, all that he's accomplished by his, 
atoning death, resurrection from the grave. I am loved. I am forgiven in all that he did. I am loved. I am accepted. I am his child. I've been adopted into his family because of Jesus. And therefore, I love him and serve him. There's a giant difference between the two. Okay? Look at this unmistakable provision, verse 30. So they said to him, okay. All right, so you're the sign. I mean, excuse me, you're the seal. Okay? What must we do? You're saying that in order to do the things that God requires, we're supposed to have faith in you. So they said to him, okay. What sign, back to signs again, do you do that we may believe you? What will you perform for us? In other words, dance for me, Jesus. Show us how worthy you are. All right? The synagogue crowd is gathered. I think the apostles were there. I think the synagogue there. I think there were people from the, from the, from the mountaintop were there. And now they want to validate it. They want to sign. They're back to signs. Show us something that's impressive. Okay, show, show me something. Think about how ironic that was. I mean, there they are standing in front of the bread of life, <laughs> the infinitely valuable and beautiful, all-satisfying Christ. Everlasting food comes down from heaven, <laughs> endures to eternal life, and they're like, do something for me. They even dare to bring up Moses. As a standard, drawing attention to what they wrongly believe he accomplished. Which really saying, Jesus, Moses did this. Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as is written. He, Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. I mean, Jesus, you fed us once. Last night. Not impressive. Moses fed us every day. Six days a week. Do something. You got, you, you got to do something. Something better than what Moses did. I mean, give me something. So, they, obviously, they got Moses on the mind. They got manna on the mind. They got the Passover and the Exodus on the mind. And they're reflecting on the manna. And Jesus is like, uh, first of all, you got it all wrong. Moses is not the one that gave it to you. Verse 32. Jesus said, truly I say to you, it wasn't Moses. I know you think it was. It wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father, he gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. And gives life. Present tense, continuing. He's giving life to what? The world. Right? Jesus says if you don't see the bread, the person standing in front of you, who is He, there's nothing I can do. There's no deeds that's going to make you, me, your satisfying pleasure. I think of the gospel account, it says, when when Abraham, you know, and and he says, send somebody back. He's in the bosom of Abraham. Send somebody back. They will believe if somebody came back from the grave. No. No. Also understand this. In Jewish thought, the Torah, the five books of Moses, was considered food. Manna from heaven, the five books. So you have, you have this manna that's come down. You got this Moses relationship. And, and Jesus is saying, I'm the true bread. I'm the true Torah. I'm the true five books. I'm the true word in myself. Yeah, manna was real. Yes, Moses gave you the books. But you know what? 
I'm the true manna from heaven. I am the true Torah. I am the fulfillment of all that Moses spoke about. I am the word who became flesh and fulfilled the law of Moses. Jesus is not just the giver of bread. He's the bread that says, look, comes down from heaven. And they say in 34, I love this. And you may say, oh, I would never say that. Ah, They said to him, really? Bread from heaven? Eternal life? Endures forever? We can eat every day? Give us this bread. I mean, right over their heads. They're talking about physical bread. They're still stuck in the physical. Sound familiar? Jesus asks the Samaritan woman for a drink. And they says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would give you living water. Really? I never have to come back here and carry my buckets anymore? The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with water. The well is deep. Ah, that's not what he's talking about. How blind we are sometimes, how so focused we are in the now, in what's in front of us now, that we don't get to see them and him as the all-satisfying Christ. Leon Morris, so blinded were they by their superficial desire for food and miracles that they missed the true spiritual significance of Jesus' person, work, and mission They were moved not by full hearts, but by what? Full bellies, end quote. Verse 35. (laughs) Jesus just like, all right. (laughs) I mean, this is me. I'd be like, look, no sense beating around the bush. You guys aren't getting it, no matter what I say. But Jesus comes flatly out and just says in verse 35, I am, no, he didn't do it like that, I don't think. But (laughs) I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Last week we talked about the I am. We said it was probably implicit when he gets on the boat, remember? Here is explicit, very clear and emphatic, I am. Pointing back to God's revealing himself to Moses as the all-sufficient God who always was, who is not dependent and exists on no one else but himself, I am forever, will always be. He says it seven times, and the bread of life I'm the light of the world. I am the door. I'm the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And then he says a little bit differently, before Abraham was, I am. And we'll get to those. Each one pointing to an important aspect of his identity, his person, his work. I am the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread. I am sustenance. I am life. I am nourishment. I am spiritual life. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, house of bread. No coincidence there. He is the bread. He says, but but here I am, verse 36. You say you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. What you're looking at is a miracle worker. What you're looking at is a caterer. What you're looking at is is an insurrectionist king. We want to make him king. You're not seeing me for who I am and believing in me. They weren't interested. They were dull in their understanding. And here's the truth. We are all dull in our understanding. If not for the bread that came down from heaven, we are all dull. Our eyes are opened when we recognize our true condition. Many times that's the beginning factor, family. If you're not seeing the treasure of Christ, you're not seeing the beauty of Christ, if you're not seeing the gospel of Christ, is your eyes are covered. And it's my prayer that God awakens you even this right this moment. To see Christ for all that he is. 
You can't live without bread in that day, and you can't live eternally without Jesus today. You cannot enter into the presence of a holy God except through Jesus Christ. The Father sent the Son into this world to be our sin bearer, to die in our place, to forgive us of our sin so that we can be reconciled and not under the righteous judgment and wrath of God for our sins. These people have seen him. Some of them saw the miracles. Some of them saw the bread that was miraculously made. Some saw the miracle healings. And they still did not believe. They cannot understand. Their eyes are closed. And they cannot understand that what Jesus is offering them is to be permanently their full in the spiritual. To no longer hunger and thirst but be cured of that hunger and thirst. Now, I don't have time for this. Let me see. What Jesus is pointing to, to what Jesus is pointing to is his ultimate reality of himself to fill us in our hunger. What Jesus is also pointing to is a fulfillment in the end, in the healed creation. Isaiah 55 talks about being full and, and, and eternally full. Revelation 7 talks about being eternally full and never being hungry. And Jesus is saying at the moment, I am that bread and I will be in the healed creation. All of you will never hunger and all of you will never thirst. But let me say one last thing and then we'll move on. It does not mean that you and I are not hungry for Jesus today. It does not mean that if you come to the bread of life, you will never hunger for spiritual things. You will. It does not mean you'll never thirst for spiritual things. In fact, the psalmist says, Oh, my soul pants after the Lord. Like a deer pants for the water. Oh, my soul pants after thee. The question becomes, who is the one that is filling you? Whom is the one that is giving you a drink, that's giving you food? Where are you searching for it? Is it in Christ? Are you coming to him? So when we are hungry, we acknowledge we are hungry for you, Lord. We are thirsty for you, Lord. We are thirsty and hungry for your grace. We are thirsty and hungry for your mercy. We are thirsty and hungry for you to reveal yourself as the supreme treasure, the incalculable worth of our lives. We hunger for you, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. And we run to Jesus. And he's enough. And lastly, the unbreakable preservation. The unbreakable preservation, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is it. And he makes it clear, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus here is unequivocally saying, all that the Father has given to me, all that the Father has given to Jesus is his gift to his son, and they will come to him. And whoever in fact comes by virtue of the father giving this gift to the son, Jesus will keep and we will receive, and Jesus will persevere. He will lose nothing. You see that in that verse? 
If Jesus loses any, if Jesus loses any, he has disobeyed his father. This is the will of him. That what he gave me, I will lose none. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are his eternally. You can rest in the truth and grace and mercy of Christ. How? Do you be sure? Look at verse 38. For because I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Do you see that, family? Do you see how beautiful that is? Look what it says at the very last verse. Have eternal life. Have you ever thought about what does new life in Christ mean to you? You guys, community group, community group leaders, talk about new life. What what does new life say to you? What does it mean to have a new life in Christ? Here's Here's just a few. We talk about having eternal life now. It's not just when we die. It's now. When I think of new life, I think of a new heart. New desires. I think of a new life, old has passed away. I think of new hope. I'm not stuck in the past. I think of transforming power that I can be changed and be more like Christ. New life means forgiveness of sins. I've been adopted into God's family. I can approach the Father through Jesus Christ in prayer whenever I want. I'm free from thinking that the suffering I'm going through is some kind of stupid karma, but God's mighty sovereign hand is upon me and he loves me. You guys could go on and continue. What does that mean? To you, having new life. Let me conclude like this. And we have to close. Do not work for food that spoils, but labor what God requires to trust and to believe in the bread of heaven. His name is Jesus. Family, here's a truth all of us can relate to this morning. We are all looking All of us have some kind of hunger in us that's very deep. And anything we put there, whether it's family, whether it's food, social acceptance, money, comfort, looks, job, portfolio, whatever it is, whatever we put there is never going to satisfy us. Listen carefully. One more minute. Every problem I have, every struggle I have is because I'm making something My life, my bread, my sustenance other than Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, for you have died and your life is hidden in Christ, with Christ in God. So when I'm worried, I'm making something. It's not just stop worrying, I'm making something, my bread, my sustenance, my life instead of Jesus Christ. Something is more important to me. I've pinned all my hope on something other than the bread from heaven. When I'm angry, it's something you've made in my life more than Jesus. Press in the gospel. He is your sustenance. He is your life. Rest upon him. Feed on him. Devour him. Realize what he has done for you and make him your life. We're going to talk about what it means to feed on him. But for the moment, look, 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 look what it says. He uses a metaphor and a non-metaphor. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, whoever trusts in me. And then he says, whoever looks to me. What does it mean to feed on Jesus? Those things. That's what God wants us to hear today. He is the bread of life for you. Will you trust him? Will you partake of him by believing and turning and running and clinging to your all-satisfying Christ? 
who came down from heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us this so that we can read it together, that we can devour it together, that we can ask, you know, have the question that we have answered that you are the bread from heaven. You're the all-satisfying Christ. And all of us hunger, Lord. So, Father, it is my prayer that you would help us to eat upon Jesus, to believe, to trust, to come, to cling to Christ. So as we sing this song, Lord, to you, not just words on a screen, not just breath from the mouth, but, Lord, it is song that is sung to you. May it be from our heart as we give it all to you our all-satisfying sustenance of life, Jesus Christ.